you have the chance to win a Spring Super Sweeps from LAist. Donate $60 for one entry to win a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Check out all the other prizes too when you donate now at laist.com sweeps. From the Moan Broadcast Center at KPCC, this is The Frame. I'm John Horn. On the show today, with the Oscars coming up on Sunday, we'll look at how much the Motion Picture Academy's membership has or hasn't changed. Then you might know Alison Brie from shows like Community and Glow. Her latest role is in the new movie Horse Girl, which she also co-wrote, but the dialogue itself was largely improvised. All the senses are heightened as you're in the moment acting with each other, and it it just leaves room for a bit of magic. And dance music with a message from the L.A. band French Vanilla. All that coming up on The Frame. The LAS Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism. One lucky grand prize winner will get to choose a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Other prizes include an electric bike from Juice Bikes and $1,000 gas gift cards. Your donation of $60 gets you one entry to win. And the more you give, the more entries you get. Donate now at LAS.com sweeps. Welcome to The Frame. I'm John Horn. This Sunday at the Academy Awards, of the 20 nominees in the four acting categories, only one, Cynthia Revo from Harriet, is a person of color. This comes five years after the creation of the Oscar So White hashtag and four years after the Academy began an aggressive push to invite more women and people of color. So why are the Oscar nominees still not more diverse? The Hollywood Reporter's Rebecca Keegan, also my former colleague at the L.A. Times, says the answer comes down to the overall demographics of Oscar voters and the films and performers that they deem worthy of recognition. She reminded us of the goals that the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences set for itself back in 2016 as part of an initiative called A2020. The Academy set two goals. They said they wanted to double the number of women members and double the number of members of color. They have succeeded in doubling the number of members of color, and they will, this year when they invite their 2020 class of new members, succeed in doubling the number of women in their membership. But even if they double those numbers, the Academy is so big and people are in it essentially for life. Uh, Does it really change the overall composition of the Academy in a material way? Well, slowly, yeah, the overall composition of the Academy is changing. I mean, if you look at where they were, say, back in 2012, when you and I worked on that L.A. Times study, the group was 94 percent white. Now they are uh, 84 percent white. So that's a significant shift. The problem is 84 percent is still really white. Back in 2012, when you and I worked on that project, they were 77 percent male. Now they are 68 percent male. So, again, closer uh, to sort of representation, but still a long way away. And the other issue, I guess, is that if you're trying to diversify the membership, you're going to invite younger people who maybe don't have as many credits as maybe people did a decade or so ago. So how is the Academy balancing its push for diversity with the overall idea that the Academy is an organization made up of people who have a distinguished career in film? Well, I think to some extent, you know, one thing that you and I learned when we did that 
deep dive on the Academy membership back at the LA Times is that distinguished career in film didn't actually apply to everybody who was in the Academy. Certainly, most of the members had a sort of active and and long resume in the film industry, but there were a lot of people who were mostly TV stars who somehow got in, people who had made, you know, a short film many years ago and remained members. So to some extent, I think that that assumption that these new, more inclusive classes of, of Academy members are somehow, they're somehow less selective. I, I just don't think that that's, that's the case. Because of Eric Estrada's great career as a film actor outside <laughs> of Chips. I know where that's going. Right, right. And also remember Meatloaf yes. uh, is, is a member. I, you know, there are a lot of folks in there who are, you know, great. But I would not say that they're exactly George Clooney or Meryl Streep. So how is the Academy going about defining quality and how is it trying to figure out what that means? Because it can mean certain things to certain people. Well, for each of the branches, they have their own sort of rules about what is quality or what is someone who, who should be approved as a member. They have to have X number of years or films. It varies from branch to branch. But in terms of what is quality in a movie, it was interesting to me to learn when talking to the Academy's membership folks that this is this is a question they're circling and that they'd want their members to think about a little more. And there'll be some initiatives around that after the Oscars. And I think that's sparked in part by the fact that this year's nominees, uh, there's only one actor of color, there are no female directors. Um, and I think the Academy itself is trying to grapple with why when we're evolving so much in our membership, did the movies that the group picked this year not reflect more diversity? So the latest research out this week from the Annenberg Inclusion Initiative found that last year was a, quote, banner year for inclusion for women and people of color, people from underrepresented groups and leading roles. So the Academy, with only one person of color, Cynthia Revo from Harriet, as an acting nominee, feels a little bit out of step. So is there a logical way to explain what the Annenberg Initiative found and what the Academy recognized with this year's nominees? Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> In a word. <laughs> I've, got, I've, I've got no answer for that. I mean, I, I thought that was fascinating to look at the Annenberg study and see that, in fact, this is one of the the best years we've had for representation for women and people of color in the film industry. Um, so it just shines a light further on on the Academy's choices. One sort of movie that comes to mind is the the Universal movie Us, which Lupita Nyong'o uh, stars in. It's a sort of thriller horror movie. It's really an extraordinary performance by her. One interesting thing to note, you know, Lupita won for her performance in 12 Years a Slave. She wasn't even nominated for this one, a much uh, sort of more wide-ranging role. Um, and some people think that gets to the sort of nature of the kinds of movies the Academy likes to honor when they are featuring people from underrepresented groups. That, you know, uh, Lupita was honored when she was playing a slave. Here she was playing a mom and a sort of more layered character, and they didn't give the film as much notice. No, and the only person of color nominated this year is Cynthia Revo, who plays Harriet Tubman. As the Academy diversifies its membership, it's also looking overseas for more members. Do you think in some ways that might reflect the reception that the film Parasite is getting within the Academy? Could very well either win Best Picture or Best Director or maybe both on Sunday. Yeah, you know, one of the things we found in our in our research was that 39 percent of 
the new Oscar voters invited since 2016 came from outside the U.S. The largest group of them, 23% hail from the U.K., uh, South Korea, the the country uh, where Parasite was made is just 4%. But it is interesting to, to think about whether these large group of new international voters are more receptive to subtitled films, which a lot of Academy members in the United States have traditionally been averse to. Rebecca Keegan is senior film editor at The Hollywood Reporter. Rebecca, thanks for coming on the show. See you on the red carpet. See you there. Coming up on The Frame, actress Alison Brie created a deeply personal role for herself in the new movie, Horse Girl. Start your Saturday with something that will grow your kiddos' brains and get their creative juices flowing. Join us at LAS for a morning of multilingual story times, interactive performances, art making, and lots of kid fun. Bring the whole fam and join us for a super fun Saturday at LAS in Pasadena on June 1st. Tickets at LAS.com slash events. See you there. Welcome back to The Frame. I'm John Horn. In the new Netflix movie, Horse Girl, Alison Brie plays a quiet craft store employee named Sarah. She enjoys some simple pleasures in life, like making lanyards and visiting the horse she used to ride. But soon it becomes clear that something in Sarah is not quite right. Some strange dreams begin seeping into her life. She finds herself waking up in random places, and she becomes more and more consumed by conspiracy theories. Horse Girl was co-written by Bree and Jeff Baina, who also directed the movie. I spoke with the two of them at the Sundance Film Festival, where the movie premiered. Alison Brie explained her personal connection to the story. My whole life, I've I've grown up listening to my mother tell me stories about my grandmother, her mother, who lived with paranoid schizophrenia. And my mother's childhood was very traumatic, and she has a lot of stories about her mother thinking the house was bugged and talking to the walls, which we reference in the movie, and the the sort of web of that trauma in my mother's family has affected a lot of different family members. And you see this trickle-down effect of mental illness and, and the way that it just sort of affected everyone in the family. And and, and as the granddaughter of that person, it, it I've just had a fascination with it my whole life, and I've always wanted to make some sort of artistic expression out of it. And more recently, I realized that rather than making a literal retelling of my mother's life growing up with my grandmother, um, what spoke more to me was was the way I personally have been affected and, you know, my personal fear about having mental illness in my bloodline and how I've felt when experiencing intense bouts of depression or things where you feel very powerless and alone and like it's never going to end. And, you know, started to think about just this idea of if I didn't have my uh, friends and family and, and like great support around me and, and feel comfortable talking to a therapist and things like that, you know, what would happen if you're at odds with your own mind, if you can't trust that you know th- that something that's happening is real or not real, that seemed like a really interesting place to start for a character. So as you're doing kind of research or writing and thinking about the issues, do you find yourself challenging your own understanding of what it means to be mentally ill? And are you actually unpacking things that you didn't really understand about how somebody with mental illness sees the world? Definitely, definitely. And I think, honestly, I think the same happened for my mother because a lot of the writing process was me sort of doing these interviews with my mom and kind of pressing her for more information that she may have kind of suppressed. And 
it's also interesting hearing it secondhand because I didn't really know my grandmother ever in my life, but this mythology kind of hung over our family. And I think trying to put myself inside it, I unlocked a lot more empathy to kind of really understand what that person would be going through. And it was a big objective for us to then put the audience in that position as well, to be along the ride for the character, not judging her from the outside, being able to feel that empathy and and that terror of what the reality would be of not knowing what's real and what's not real. And Jeff, that seems to be part of the perspective that you bring to it as a filmmaker is that we're not going to judge the way that she sees the world, we're going to believe as much as you can that what she says is what she sees and what she feels. Yeah, absolutely. I think like in general, when I make movies, I like to make it so that it's almost like a phenomenological experience. So as things are happening, they're unfolding before you. There's no like prejudice. There's no judgment. It's just as it is. And then, you know, afterwards we can kind of assign meaning to it, but I don't think that's the way the world works. We don't have things that have meaning appear to us. We assign meaning to it afterwards. So all these things that are happening, which, you know, could be sort of supernatural or like things that you wouldn't expect or all those things are possible. And I want to kind of like play it in the same sort of, I guess, casualness as if someone's like just going to get a cup of coffee because that's the way it appears to you in real life. We're talking with Jeff Baina, the director and co-writer of Horse Girl and Alison Brie, who co-wrote it and stars in it. Yeah, I've been having like really weird dreams. Really? About what? Um. I don't know, like, like I've been seeing the same people over and over again, and like, these strange places I've never been before, and I don't know how to describe it, it just feels really weird, like really scary. That's horrible. And like, I've been having like weird things with time. Weird things with time? Like, finding myself places and I don't know how I got there. Allison, when you were writing it, are you always imagining that you're going to play this part? Oh, definitely. And that was part of the impetus for writing it, too, is wanting to perform in something in a different way than I have before and in a kind of a different genre because I I love thrillers. I love the sci-fi genre. So I think I just wanted to do something kind of different. And definitely it was... It was a big part of why I wanted to write it. And then very helpful to me when I was acting in it later, having basically done all my character work while we were creating the character together. But that can work both ways because you can be working as a screenwriter, writing things that as a writer, you say, this is what this movie needs. And then you get on the day of the sense like, oh my God, I have to do this. What does what my screenwriter, <laughs> me, obligated me to pull off? I think it actually thing. worked the other way around. There were okay. some times where we actually were like, oh my God, okay. I can't believe we did that work for ourselves. And there was like one moment that actually didn't make it into the movie where there was a scene where she's just getting clothes from her roommate. And it became this like really emotional beat that we ended up excising. But in the moment, it was really beautiful and I couldn't believe it. And we realized afterwards, like we had set that up. But we didn't really, it's not like we were anticipating it as we were about to shoot it. In addition, the way we shot this was all the dialogue was improvised. So there is a, like a certain element of being present as it's happening and unfolding. There's still an element of mystery, even as we were making it to see how our actors would put it in their mouths. Does that mean that other actors don't really know what your character is going to say, that they have to react to it well, almost know, in real time. They Absolutely. know what the character is going to say. It's broken down what's happening in the scene. It's basically a very detailed outline that outlines every scene and what's going on, but we leave it up to the actors to just say it in their own voice. For me, I find it so fulfilling and so much more, I think, real because 
instead of people doing that kind of thing you see in like Ed Wood movies where the other actors like kind of mouthing the other person's line, waiting for their line, no one knows what's about to happen. So you have no choice but to listen. And you don't really get that a lot in movies. I think for the most part, I mean, everyone's a professional actor, so they know how to play the parts that, as they are written. But there is a certain sort of danger element and certain awareness that you have to be on in order for it to work that it makes it a lot more exciting. And I think the final product, it, it goes a place that you weren't expecting. It brings in the outside world a little bit more than I think you would if, if, as if it's like hermetically sealed when you're doing something that's completely scripted. Definitely. All the senses are heightened as you're in the moment acting with each other and it, and it just leaves room for a bit of magic. There is a TV show inside the movie. It's Purgatory. called Purgatory. <laughs> and it doesn't look like it's invented. It looks like something that could actually exist. Well, also, wish. those scenes are fully scripted. That's the only scripted yeah. stuff in the movie. But what was the inspiration behind that TV show? Because I think CBS now wants to option it. That'd be great. We would like to. We would like to sell it, the, if you're listening. I mean, the CW. real inspiration was um, there, there was a sushi place I used to go to, and there was a woman who worked at the sushi place, and she was like a very quiet, sweet woman. And, um, at one point I came in with a friend who was on a procedural that she was obsessed with. That was a supernatural type of procedural. And she like started gushing and saying how this person saved her life and how she, you know, had actually had thoughts that were really dark and that by watching the show, she was able to kind of get out of it. And, um, that kind of left a mark on me. And so I thought that would be like a nice element to add to this character that she's using this show and sort of this, these fantastical elements and sort of like the consistency of being able to always check in with these people as some kind of stability in her life when there isn't that much stability. Allison, you have another movie that's playing at the festival, Promising Young Woman. Yeah. Jeff, you've been here with a number of films. What does Sundance mean for you as filmmakers, as writers, as actors, as directors? For me, it's like the ultimate like uh, check mark on importance for the movie itself. Like if I'm not saying that other festivals don't matter, but I think I grew up in the nineties. And so all the independent films in the nineties always came through Sundance. And that's sort of like the, the touchstone through which you can sort of judge that movie. Um, so like when you watch like Steven Soderbergh or David Russell or Alexander Payne, like all these people, that's, that's sort of like the, I guess the heritage of like independent filmmaking. And so you, you want it to be here because number one, everyone that's coming here loves movies. So when you have your opening night and they don't, this movie's a little weird because the, the trailer came out before it actually premiered, but like usually no one has any idea what you're doing and they're just so down and love movies and they're just so open. And that's like when you're making these movies, like this is the audience. This is the moment that that first premiere night is literally what you're aiming for. Everything after that is great. But like that single moment of like that unknown that they're like engaging in, and experiencing for the very first time is like the goal. Yeah, I think it's just, it's like the culmination of the love fest because to me, independent film is so much about people who are doing it for the love of the game because they love making movies. It certainly was true about this crew. The crew that we worked with were incredible. Everyone's there because they find the story meaningful. They want to work with, you know, each other and with you. Um, and then to come here, it's such a society of, of love and support. And again, like you said, the love of film itself, you can take big risks and you know that you have people who are interested in, in seeing those risks. And I'd say with this film, it is a big risk because it's really asking the audience to challenge their assumptions of how somebody with mental illness is received and whether or not they shouldn't be discounted. Sure. Absolutely. I mean, that was probably the impetus for the movie itself. I mean, mm -hmm. we, we wanted to explore like the humanity of it, not mm -hmm. sort of like the judgment or sort of like the stigma, how, the stigma of it. 
Allison and Jeff, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Horse Girl is out on Netflix today. It's also playing at the Los Feliz Theater here in L.A. Up next on The Frame, a post-punk dance party with the band French Vanilla. Alleyest has a new live event series with the James Beard Foundation. We Are Where We Eat will go behind the scenes of some of your favorite L.A. restaurants to find out how and why they do what they do. I'm Austin Cross. Join me for the first event where we'll explore how restaurants help make a neighborhood and we'll all have something delicious to eat afterwards. It's May 22nd at the Crawford. Get your tickets now at las.com slash events. Welcome back to The Frame. I'm John Horn. The L.A. post-punk band French Vanilla makes dance music with a message. With songs like Bromo Sapien, it's clear that the band has a sharp sense of humor, but the underlying themes in their lyrics of queer identity and gender bias couldn't feel more urgent. The Frame contributor Allison Wolf spoke with bandmates Sally Spitz, Daniel Troutfield, and Ali Day about their most recent album, How Am I Not Myself? My name is Sally Spitz, and I sing and I write for French Vanilla. My name is Daniel Troutfield, and I play bass and saxophone. My name is Ali Day, and in French Vanilla, I play guitar and bass, both of them. We've been definitely evolving as musicians. The first album, we made those songs, some of us having never played instruments before, essentially. For the song Carrie, a shy girl doesn't make friends easily. That song is a reference to the film starring Sissy Spacek based on the Stephen King novel Carrie. I was very struck by that storyline because I had experienced abuse, hazing when I was in high school. And I had these very vivid memories of like locker room and the auditorium and these venues that are in the film that are so quintessentially high school. I feel like that's the most divisive song we have. When we like open for like maybe like an all male band and it's their crowd, they'll just be staring at us like, what? Yeah, there's just nothing quite like looking out, pouring your heart out, and then seeing some teenage guy eyes like glazed donuts looking back at you. Right. you yeah, because we pretty, going on in pretty explicitly talk about menstruation, and that doesn't play that well to an all-male audience. Yeah, I mean, they don't have to encounter death monthly. Me and Allie grew up in Lompoc, California. We went, we went to high school together. And to prom together. And I think to a homecoming together, too. Oh. Just prom, babe. But we're not dating because I am gay. We went as friends. Yeah. Although he was not out to me, so. I mean, wow. what is the definition of a friend? What's the definition of dating? Okay, so we were dating? Maybe we were is dating. Is that what you're I telling mean, me? We went, to, we went to homecoming. Okay, so. No, we went to prom. <laughs> 
I was probably the biggest band nerd in my school. I was the drum major of the marching band, which included me having to dress up as a Jedi at high school football games. Many of my early memories are on the band bus. Friendly Fire is my favorite song. Those are some of my favorite lyrics because I think it's like my echo from the speakers. I hear a rumble in the bleachers. Bleachers remind me of marching band because we used to like perform on the field at football game shows and you'd kind of hear (laughs) ostensibly my saxophone reverberating and coming back to you on the field. This is Allie. Growing up, I was never really encouraged to play music. My brother always played guitar. And I actually remember saying to him one time, I hope that you like become a rock star one day. Like it somehow never even occurred to me that I could be the one playing music until I was much older. Um, And it wasn't really until college when I had friends like Sally over here that I started having my own dreams of starting a band. Our new album is called How Am I Not Myself? This album, it had in large part to do with like a queer, like sexual awakening that was pretty delayed. You know, it had a lot inside that I hadn't really explored or considered. The album and writing like lesbian songs, stepping out of the expectation and the norm for me, and it was very exciting and liberating. Other bands were like, oh my god, when you go on tour, you guys are going to kill each other. And then when we went on tour, we get along so well. It's just a pleasure. I mean, we were friends first, bandmates second, and future frenemies. (laughs) Even more future business partners. (laughs) Even more future buried next to each other. That was the L.A. band French Vanilla. You can catch them on March 6th at the Natural History Museum in Los Angeles. And that is it for today. But remember, the Academy Awards are this Sunday. So tune in for the Frame Oscar special tonight at 9, Saturday afternoon at 2, and Sunday at noon. You'll hear from many of the top nominees, including Renee Zellweger, Adam Driver, and Parasite director and co-writer Bong Joon-ho. The show is produced by Darby Maloney, Monica Bushman, Jonathan Shiflett, and Julia Paskin, with help this week from Itzy Quintanilla. Eduardo Perez is our engineer. The Frame's opening theme music is by Taylor McFerrin, and the show's senior producer is Oscar Garza. I'm John Horn. We're back here on Monday from the Moan Broadcast Center with our analysis of the Academy Awards. Have a great Oscar weekend.
As a farmer's son from a desert region in California, J.B. Hamby thinks a lot about water. I spent a lot of time digging up history, particularly about water, which is the origins of the Imperial Valley. How this 28-year-old became the youngest lead negotiator on the Colorado River ever. And how he could shape the most consequential negotiations to date. Listen to Imperfect Paradise, the Gen Z water dealmaker, wherever you get podcasts.